Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a hat trick podcast. Oh, This episode of Twice Upon a Time is in partnership with the Prima Donna Festival. Prima Donna is a festival for people who love books, ideas, and interesting conversations. So it's right up our street. My guest today will be on the judging panel for the Prima Donna Prize, which is for unsigned and unrepresented new writing talent. And if you'd like to attend the festival, you can get tickets. It's taking place from Friday the 28th to Sunday the 30th of July. Go to primadonnafestival.com or you can find them on Instagram at primadonnafestival. Welcome to Twice Upon a Time, Andy Osho, actress, writer, presenter, comedian, podcaster, and we'll come back to some of those titles later. Andy, thanks so much for joining in. And what book have you chosen, please? So the book I've chosen is called Willie the Scrouse by Ted Allen. And how did you come by your copy? How old were you when you first saw this book? I remember being in primary school reading this. So I must have been, I'm going to guess like seven or eight. So um, I had a look and I saw that, I think he, I think he wrote it in like 1973. That's So, yeah. So I must have been just like a few years into primary school when I got my hands on it. Um, Yeah. Just shortly after it came out, I guess. And did you have your own copy? Um, I don't think I did. I think I borrowed it from the school library. I mean, I was a big reader as a child. And so I was just sort of burning through books. But the thing is, I thought this book was much bigger (laughs) when I I was at school. I imagined it being this big sort of like Lord of the Rings sort of, you know, doorstopper. And then, and then when, (laughs) when I saw this copy of it, I was like, where's the rest? No, (laughs) No, it's it's tiny. And I felt like it took me ages to read it as well. So maybe I wasn't such a fast reader. (laughs) Yes. It's 73 pages, Fact Fans. It's a slim volume. It is a slim volume. Yeah, and yeah. When, you, when you were reading a book that you brought home from school like that, did you have a special place that you would go to read? Um, probably most likely my bedroom. Um, I was not, I wasn't a, like a solitary kid as such, but I did, I just like to just disappear into the, you know, into the world of a, a book that I was reading. And yeah, it's not really conducive doing that in front of the telly. So I'd probably disappear off to my bedroom. And did you did you have to share your bedroom or was it just yours? No, no, it was just me. So we had this little three bedroom terrace house and I've got two brothers. So they were older and they shared a room and I was lucky enough to uh, get a, the box room. But actually uh, after a while, um, an aunt and uncle moved in. So I had to share with my mum for a little while. But yeah, for there was a sweet spot where I got to have a room all to myself. So did your brothers take books away from you or were they quite respectful of you as a little reader? Well, my brothers were six and seven years older than me. So I think think what I was into <laughs> wouldn't have floated their boats at all. I remember that uh, my uh, oldest brother was reading The Lord of the Rings and he was very proud of like having made it through this whole thing. And I was still uh, like Hobbit level. <laughs> so there was not going to be any crossover. 
Describe this book for me, Willie the Squouse, because it's I, I didn't know this book before at all, and I'm so glad you've introduced me to it. But it is a slim volume. Can have you got your copy there to describe the front cover for us? Yeah, so the front cover, it's um a Quentin Blake illustration, and the main image, I guess, is of Willie the Squouse, who is a cross between a squirrel and a mouse. But it's like a classic Quentin Blake illustration and actually I assumed that all his work was for Roald Dahl so I was surprised if I thought I assumed that this was a Roald Dahl story and then you know when we were looking into it realized oh it's actually somebody else Ted Allen and then I looked up Ted Allen and all the things that he's done so it's quite interesting to sort of go back to it after all this time but yeah so it's a sort of classic Quentin Blake illustration. The pictures really add to it, don't they? They are so definitive of his style, but also he's so clever at these tiny, almost thumbnail sketches of what's going on. So it really, um, wh- why did it make it a, a, a favourite for you? Was it the story or the pictures or the combination? I think it was a combination, but definitely the story. Because I was thinking, what is it about Willie the Squirrel that's made the story stick with me for so long? And I think it's something to do with him being on his own because I that I'm familiar with the idea of, right, that's it. I've just got to get on with it. I'm on my own now. And um, I think that really resonated. And he's such a sweet little character as well and a little bit misunderstood, which I relate to as well. Just the idea that people just just because I'm a cross between a squirrel and a mouse, it doesn't mean I'm weird. I'm just different. It's also he, he's also doing an acrobatic pose, which is um material to the story too and it's so plausible this that for a a brief moment I thought is that a thing squirrel and mice before I realized that that might be a little tricky on both sides but somehow the fact that it's just accepted that this is how he's happened is so practical in the story that you don't have to think about how that might possibly have come to be do you no I mean it's the world of sort of really want to think about it no not really not not the anatomical kind of yeah how did that happen but like you know it's the world of children's (laughs) books uh, and so all things are possible but you know there's a funny thing like you know when you get into the story and the issue with the money so I suppose we should talk about the story before I say anything about the money but absolutely tell tell me the story of Willie the Squouse so um Willie the Squouse is the pet uh, of this guy who trains circus acts but he becomes destitute and leaves the house that he's living in. And on the other side um, is, a, is a couple. Their stocks have like come in or whatever. I don't know what the right term is. <laughs> Real money person here. But uh, their, their stocks are paying dividends of like £200 a week. But instead of spending it, they, they kind of put the money into the wall. Then in the house that's been vacated... This family moves in and they're a little bit rough and ready. And when they see Willie the Squouse come through because he's he's looking for food, um, they put out some cheese to tempt him so that they can kill him. And he takes this money that's in the wall and stuffs <laughs> yes. it into the wall. And basically what happens is that the the mother of the of this like family that have moved in starts to believe that the chair that she's sitting on when this money comes through, uh, she believes it's magical and that th- this is how they're going to make their fortune by sitting on this chair, putting cheese in front of the hole. And then miraculously money comes through. But of course, it's Willie just trying to save himself and not get <laughs> battered by by the dad who's trying to catch him. And so, you know, that's basically the premise of the story. There's so much there, isn't there? And first of all, you mentioned the fact that the money comes through in stocks and shares, which even now, I'm not sure how that would pay that dividend. But when you read it as a child, 
What is it that you do, do you think? Do you just gloss over that or do you just accept that's an adult way of making money? Because obviously Ted Allen knew perfectly well what it meant, but it's such a big fact in this book. And yet I'm sure reading it as a child, you don't necessarily think, pass me the Financial Times, I must investigate this. Yeah, exactly. I think because you've got no point of reference and no knowledge of the world in that way, you just accept it. I mean, I have no recollection of going, hold on a minute, aren't dividends paid annually? Or, you know, or any any thought like that. I was just like, £200 a week, that sounds fair. Moving on with the story. But um, what I was also going to say was I, I sort of did the maths of like how much money would have come through the wall. And it also doesn't completely make sense how how rich. <laughs> it's massively disproportionate, like how rich this um, other family become by receiving this money. They become inc- really wealthy. Exactly. Like non-dom state as wealthy. Uh, and so, but as kids, obviously you don't question that because it's allegorical really anyways, isn't it? It's not about the the factual detail. It's about saying, look, at the end of the day, the most important thing is having people who care about you. Money doesn't solve problems in the way that you think it will. Absolutely. And it's that wonderfully childish way of looking at money, isn't it? When When you don't have any means of making any as a child, you sort of assume that's how money comes easily and plentifully. And therefore, you know, uh, it makes all kinds of sense that it would be just money stuffed in the wall. But it's, I love the sort of, there's almost a Shakespearean opening to this as well, isn't there? The two households, uh, Ted Allen begins to describe them like that, you know, two households, although they're not actually both alike in dignity, to be fair, because one of them is very undignified. But there's all sorts of things in, it, just in the opening lines of this book and the description of these two households next to each other, particularly after Joe who was Willie's sort of promoter, has had to go. But the the family who then move in are actually appalling. I mean, there's elements of wife beating and alcoholism. I mean, they they really, it's laid on pretty thick, isn't it? Well, I think that often we think of like fairy tales and children's stories as quite, I don't know, lovely and quite docile, but actually they're often vicious and violent and, you know, bloody sometimes. And this is no exception really in that respect of the things that you've mentioned. I mean, I did feel like rereading it Hmm, a little, not not sure that all this would not be considered like slightly problematic in this day and age. But, you know, without getting into that idea of censorship and stuff. But um, yeah, it, it is a classic children's story in that sense of it's quite, it's quite brutal in places. And even just the abandonment would be quite upsetting, I guess, for a child to read about. Yeah, because Willie, the squouse, gets knocked out by a stray piece of masonry. And it's a bit like that Evelyn War book, you know, um, where at the end of it, uh, the guy is drugged so that when the when he's risk, when rescue is in the offing, uh, he misses oh, it no. because the guy who is keeping in prisoner base, you know, the one, what is it? I, I don't Which know. Which one is it? No. I'm thinking, oh, I remember now, A Handful of Dust is the Evelyn War book. But it's that idea that because he was knocked out and Joe thought he'd disappeared, yeah. that Joe leaves and then Willie comes round and he is, as you say, completely alone yeah and then in this rather hostile world yeah yeah totally and 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 I should add as well like at first he's able to sort of raid the couple's kitchen to feed himself so what's happening on the other side is not really of any consequence but then when they they well I mean spoiler alert they pass away um that's when he has (laughs) to go foraging into the other place and the the smell of the cheese just intoxicates him and he, he can't resist going um into the more volatile household 
household to get food. So yeah, it's it's kind of kind of harsh. <laughs> What's interesting is that very early on, the idea of the money, the money sequestered, is what comforts the Pickerings. They they don't actually want to spend mm. any of this. I mean, I think she buys herself some more knitting needles, but you know, they they don't go crazy with this money. They just like the fact that it's there mm. and tucked away. And equally, I mean, there will be plenty of spoil. We will talk about the end of this book, but the the fact that it's mm. there for them is only ever what they need, which is again quite a sophisticated idea, isn't it? Yeah, I guess this idea that that they are providing their own sort of security emotionally. I suppose the story does really talk about like our relationship with money and really what does it mean to us? Because to them it just meant peace of mind. They didn't have to spend any of it. They just needed to have it to have the peace of mind. Whereas to the family on the other side, it meant <laughs> they were instantly into spend mode. But then they did speculate. And, you know, I mean, you know, like I said, I did the calculations on how much they would have received. And, and they must have invested like very, very wisely. But then Joe becomes successful and he realises that it means nothing without his friend. Actually, that part of the story I found really moving. And when I first read it, I hadn't investigated the writer Ted Allen at all. So I didn't realise that he had deep and personal knowledge of how the system works when you're promoting and putting on shows. Because just in a few lines, he describes how Joe has got this group of elephants Mm -hmm. that he trains by (laughs) hypnosis to perform all sorts of stories. They become massively set. There's a film made, um, a Hollywood musical purporting to dramatize the love life of elephants, which, as he says, was a travesty of both love (laughs) and elephants. Wow. That's a wonderful line, isn't it? It's just so poignant. And written by somebody who knows what what people who just want to make money from you can do. Yeah, yeah. And then at the end, I mean, I think as well, and just like really beautifully, like reaching the pinnacle of of whatever, but feeling like it was done in in a way that doesn't have integrity. So it it doesn't it can't yes. mean as much. Well, right at the beginning, when Joe and and Willie the Squouse are demonstrating Willie's talents, and he's obviously an amazing acrobat, so all the time that Joe is talking about him, he's demonstrating what he can do. But the promoter keeps saying, it's not box office, it's not box office. I thought, gosh, this is the only book, children's book, that Ted Allen wrote, and I wondered if in some ways there was some exorcism (laughs) of something he'd heard once too often. Yeah, it's like... Yeah, that that that's very possible that he was channeling some sort of past pain of some promoter or something that he was trying to persuade to take on something that he created and got that thrown back in his face. Exactly. Because it did feel quite grown up in the I wouldn't even use that language when if I was talking about something that wasn't going to be successful. Um I just go I don't think it's going to work. I wouldn't say it's not box office. That's very esoteric. It is. But it's funny, rereading a lot of these books, I'm discovering that as a child, what you take from a book is very, very different from what you get as an adult. And one of the things that really struck a chord with me now, and that I know would have been absolutely the thing I would have spotted, is the superstition of how they get them, mm. the pickerings get the money. As you're right, you know, they're, they're trying to, to kill the squirrels initially. And then discovering this money because she's sitting on a wonky chair trying to tempt the squirrels with cheese and the money appears. And as a child, I was 
riddled with superstition. Really? Yeah, I can really I can really identify with that. You know, you have to be in the same place at the same time mm. doing the same thing. So much so that right at the end when they're attempting one last go at the money and the chair breaks mm. And in fact, there is no more money for a, for a very different reason, um, because the money has come to an end. The Pickerings have received a notice saying, right, that's it. <laughs> so there's no more. Mm. But as far as they're concerned, there's still, you know, let's say millions in there. Mm. But the, the ritual and the superstition of that, I thought that that seems, I don't know whether that came from his own childhood or just from an idea that he had at the time, but it resonated with me. I, I feel like when I was growing up, there was much more weight given to superstition like people talked a lot more with seriousness about not walking under ladders and black cats and magpies and you know what I mean? And they, they probably had their yes. rituals and things like that. I feel like nowadays, I don't know, because we've become more quote unquote sort of logic based or something or reason based, like we don't go in for it so much or maybe we've substituted it with something else. But back then, I feel, now that you mention it, I feel like people were talking about like superstitions all the time. Yes. Maybe it was where I lived. <laughs> we were sort of obsessed with... Can you remember any of yours? I didn't have any. And in fact, <clears throat> you know, I would sometimes intentionally walk under ladders and yeah, see, you know, just to prove it wrong and stuff. Or, or I'd do it just because we were supposed to, you know, like, you know, breaking a mirror. I was always breaking stuff anyways. And so breaking another one because that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> Actually, I really get that because I too would walk under ladders. My superstitions were all invented by me, like putting my toys to bed in a particular order, ah, that kind of thing. Right, right, right. It was exhausting, actually. I'm glad I've grown out of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I'm trying to think if I had anything like that. Because <laughs> you're right, we were surrounded by that sort of stuff, wouldn't it? You know, whistling here and there, quoting Macbeth, all that stuff. You yeah. know, it was, it was a constant stream. I'm thinking about the Macbeth thing as well, because, you know, when I became an actor, uh, because I didn't go to drama school, that sort of notion yeah. wasn't drummed into me. So <laughs> I was sort of Macbeth, 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 every time I went into like theatres. I mean, not intentionally to wind people up, but I just didn't, it just hadn't been drummed into me. So I didn't think anything of it. Maybe I'm just not like predisposed towards um, superstitions anyways. Was there just a little bit of devilment there in the in the <laughs> quoting of Macbeth in dressing rooms, knowing that other people would quail, be honest? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. Quite possibly. <laughs> Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
jumping back to the end of the book, the story of Joe, the failed promoter who then becomes successful, elephants, etc. He and Willie are reunited at the end of the book. But again, I'm tempted to think that, that Ted Allen hadn't quite thought through how he would end the book. And as a writer, mm-hmm. you know, there's that thing where you recognize that somebody says, you've got to tie up a few loose ends here, guys. So first of all, he says that Joe had no joy in his life and neither a male or female companion. He turned to alcohol. Right. He lost yeah. all his money. Yeah. Meanwhile, in the other household, the son of the couple who actually, I hope, you, did you include this in your mouths? Because the son, Richard Pickering, of the couple who were yeah. squirreling, yeah. for want of a better word, away the money, also gives his parents money from his salary every week. That's true. Yes, I've forgotten about that. Yeah. I'm imagining that some stayed pretty much the same, not inflation linked, <laughs> but, but even so, you know, they're getting a bit from him. Um, and then he becomes a professor. And then weirdly enough, uh, one of his students is the daughter of the couple who are taking the money, Lucille, and, and they get married. That's quite glibly dealt with. That's fine. <laughs> and having got their son settled with one of his students, the couple, the Pickerings, hold hands, sit in their respective chairs, and simultaneously die. And Richard, in one paragraph, uh, accepts this as the fact they've had a really happy life, they loved each other, and that's that. And it's either a brilliant way of saying stuff happens and you move on, or it's Ted going, I better finish this. I'm not sure which. Yeah, so I, because I, I, it's funny actually, because now you say it, I, I was aware a little bit, you know, as a writer as well, you're aware of the mechanics of what somebody is having to do to, because even creating the superstition for Mary Smith, who, who receives the money, he had to put some certain things in place. So you can see those little elements going in. And one of them was the Pickerings having to die so that the, you know, the money would run out I guess um, as a sort of a function of the story rather than a poignant moving moment necessarily I didn't mind it you know I thought that's you know he's given them a happy life always assuming that they were very wealthy and luckily they never had to find out what had actually happened but um it's quite a, a sort of calm way really of dealing with it yeah and even the the fact that the Smiths now that they're no longer standing on the right chair etc um, they move away and he becomes elected to parliament oh yes and it wasn't till that point I don't know about you but I realized that this book must be set in England had had you clocked that um yeah I felt I felt like Pickerings and Smiths that felt very British <laughs> you're right there are clues <laughs> Reading it as a, a sophisticated adult and realizing that Ted Allen was Canadian ah. um, and doing my backwards research as usual, I thought, oh, of course, of course it was, you know, it was, um, it was, it was in England all along. But the fact that woven in amongst, there are lots of references to the effects of alcoholism. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, both, both characters, the Pickerings and Joe drink to excess and the excuse of money too because he he says at one point that Pickering Senior carries on drinking but because he was rich nobody minded he literally puts nobody minded you're right I mean he does it does feel a little bit grown up (laughs) to have these references to alcohol abuse in there but again 
that this is like not unusual for a children's story, particularly ones written at that time. I'm sure, you know, it would be handled in a different way by an author writing today. But back then I felt like, no, that was, that was quite usual for those themes to be part of like the story world. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, with reading a book like this, when, when you were reading it by yourself, would you have discussed it with anyone or did you just move on to the next book? No, I think I would have just moved on. It was, for me, it wasn't like a book club experience. It was more like I wanted to just disappear into the world. So I was quite a sensitive child. And so I found the world quite difficult to navigate at times. And so disappearing into a book was a real solace for me of just, you know, vanishing into a world that was completely not like the one I was in. Um, Although, having said that, there was a period where we, uh, this is more in secondary school, where I went through a phase of reading uh, James Herbert and everybody, (laughs) we were all reading them because they had like naughty scenes in them. And so uh, we'd all talk about that. (laughs) Also, frankly, terrifying a lot of that. So Yeah, but we wanted that. Yeah, we we wanted that. We wanted to, I mean, it was a safe scare, you know, like a roller coaster. And so I think we really enjoyed that. And also I I was just reflecting back on the types of books that we, we were reading in class and, you know, we, we, we were never really reading commercial fiction. So I think it was, that's why we wanted to read it outside of class because it was more accessible and easier to penetrate rather than capturing the ride where we're all like, What's actually happening? <laughs> yeah, I completely get that. Um, so if if you are this sensitive child who feels a little sometimes out of place in the world, the last thing I would imagine you'd want to do is stand up, <laughs> comedian. Andy, how, what was your route into that? How did, earth did you get there? Well, if you're talking about how a sensitive kid ends up doing stand up, that's exactly the the sort of thing that that you know you would look to because you're looking for that validation outside of yourself. That's just like on a psychological level, like on a practical level, I was an actor and I wasn't getting work and I wanted something that I could do that would um, allow me to have a bit more control creatively that I wouldn't have to wait for permission before I could express myself creatively. And I looked at some other actors that I really admired at the time and they, coincidentally, they had all done stand-ups. I was like, oh my God, no, I'm not doing that. Um, But then, you know, just as time went on and I was still like getting the odd audition here and there, but worse, I was getting sort of stage fright essentially when I was auditioning. I realised that I have to do something that keeps my hand in the game even when my hand's not in the game. And so that was why I started doing stand-up. Okay, but to spill back from that then, mm. um, how did you get into acting? Because that sounds, again, like a, a big old transition from the person that you were to wanting to be someone else in front of other people. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're, if you're sensitive, it doesn't necessarily mean you're, sh- you're shying away from people. Some- sometimes you might be looking to them again, like I say, for your validation. And so um, I, you find coping mechanisms and that might end up actually being quite a big personality, uh, which I think I did cultivate for, for a while. And so I worked behind the camera for about 10 years thinking I wanted to be close to, you know, the, the 
front of the stage, but not too close, still behind the camera kind of thing, <laughs> safe distance. But then, you know, it got, it got to the point I was working on a job and there were a lot of actors there and just rubbing shoulders with them. I just realized, oh, this is something I've always wanted to do, but I've never believed in myself enough to make the jump. And I was approaching a big, you know, zero based th- uh, birthday. And I just thought, you know what, let's just give it a go. Cause then I want to be able to say I tried, even if I'm no good, I want to end my life knowing I tried rather than I didn't even give it a go. And if I'm no good, so be it. I'll carry on doing what I'm doing. And it, it ended up working out. It really did. And that, that is fantastic. <laughs> but were you supported in this? Were your family behind you all the way or or did they worry for you? It was a bit of both, really. My mum was definitely worried um, because it didn't completely make sense. You know, she comes from an, she comes from a place of like, create security for yourself, get a good job, get a good education. You know what I mean? Like follow quite linear paths to, to, to security essentially. Whereas my theory is because I'm the youngest of three, I think that safety had already been done by my older brothers. So that gave me the freedom to just go, you know what, let me just do something really maverick, (laughs) like do a job where I've got minimum chance of success. Um, So yeah, I think, (laughs) I think that's what had me just like make the leap. Yeah. Cause that, I still think Stand up is one of the bravest things you can do, and I've I've seen you do it, Andy. In fact, I saw you win Funny Women. Um, oh when wow! You, when you won that, was it two thousand and seven? Seven, yeah. And to me, that looks terrifying because uh, you know, uh, as an actress, I know that I'm I'm okay doing improvisation. I'm okay with a script, but being me is really scary. Did you have to invent a persona to do that? Was it Andy Plus? Sure. I mean, not really, because it's more like you on your best day. That's that's how I see stand up. So rather than because otherwise, you know, sometimes when actors do stand up, you can see that they're creating a character. And I think the audience sense it and they don't really sort of connect with that. They they want more like a heightened version of you. They still want it to be you. And so I think that's what I I did with stand up. And I I sort of enjoyed being out there as me. You know, when I talk to some actor friends, they're like, no, that is the last thing I want to do. I don't want to do, I hate doing interviews. I don't want to be on the Graham Norton couch or whatever. But I'm just like, you just chat. <laughs> You're just you on a good day. It's like Baraka you. <laughs> Actually, I, 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 can't, I get that because I think presenting is a bit like that too, isn't it? It's sort of edited highlights, I used to call it. You yeah. Know, it's, it is. You're right. It's the best bits. Yeah, 100%. I mean, having said that, though, because it's been quite a while since I've done stand up. So n- now I'm finding that when I come to do like quite high profile telly stuff, which I would have been doing quite frequently as a stand up, because I'm not doing that so much. I am quite nervous now. Like, you know, I did the Graham Norton show and I was very nervous. Whereas if, if I was still doing stand up, i.e. being myself a lot of the time in front of people, it wouldn't have been so nerve wracking. So it's interesting, like how because I've shifted my career, like my relationship with being me in front of people has shifted as well. But you wrote in one of your one of your blogs that you don't want to do stand up anymore. Is that true still? Or is there a part of you that thinks you want to explore more of that dichotomy between you and you plus and the fact that you can use some of that when you're acting too? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how useful it is in 
in my acting. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely true that I, I've sort of stepped away from stand-up. It's been several years now since I've um, gone on stage. What would it be like? Maybe 2017, something like that. Um, so yeah, a good sort of six years now. Um, I, I mean, I never don't want to do it. I just like being at home in the evenings more. So <laughs> it's more like that. <laughs> I'm so understanding of that. <laughs> I'm so understanding. Um, and when we talk about your acting career, I mean, honestly, Andy, I, I sort of ran out of highlighter. Oh. And you've been in amazing shows like Line of Duty or Blue Lights, which I loved, or I May Destroy You. Also, very impressive that that you have uh, been very successful on Mastermind, which I, apart from stand-up, I can't think of anything else more scary. Did, did you find that unnerving? Oh, you know, I love general knowledge. I... Uh as long as I know the answers. But, I, you know, I, I do find that sort of thing quite fun. So, and, the, you know, because it's charity, the questions are easier. Let's let's just be honest about that. So, so it, it's kind of, I found it quite fun. Like I did the chase as well and ended up like, you know, going head to head with the chaser on my own. I was like, yeah, come on, bring it. So I, I quite like all that sort of general knowledge stuff, um, especially if you, you know, you're raising money for a good cause. That, that makes it like 10 times as Absolutely. good. Absolutely. But it's the subjects as well. Just, just tell us the the subjects that you chose for Mastermind well, because they're pretty <laughs> So the first time I did it, I chose The Matrix, which is a you know a series of films that I love. Yes, even three, not four though, but that wasn't out at the time. Um, and then my for the second time I did Mastermind, I chose John Humphreys as my specialist subject, and of course he was at that time, Perfect. yeah, he was the the host of the show. So it was great because he had to ask the questions in the first person. So in what year did I interview Margaret Thatcher? <laughs> that is absolutely genius. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And he was really like on board. <laughs> well done. I think that's genius. Um, just to, to, to bring it back, I, I think there is, um, not that I'm necessarily looking for one, but I think there's a kind of through line because your, your stand-up always seemed to me to be, for want of a better word, kind. I mean, hugely observational, very self-deprecating. But you were never one of those people who took on the audience, certainly not when I saw you. And I think that sort of, kindness makes you more receptive which makes you a brilliant actress I think I think that's you know that that's the connection I would make oh, thank you and to bring it back to the book just briefly the the writer of this Ted Allen had the most extraordinary career he was a journalist originally mm. ended up covering the Spanish Civil War then became a screenwriter did things like the stage adaptation of Oh What a Lovely War he he lived in in the UK he lived in Putney actually mm -hmm. for a long time and his his son has written um I, I don't think you should rush to this because it's a very interesting read but it is a little haphazard, shall we say? It's a very earnest biography of his father. But what's amazing is that it is full of names of that period, sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, that you would sweep the table after he's dropped them. Anyone from Edna O'Brien to Cyril Connolly. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Mm. And yet in this book, he just brings it down to these simple things. So he must have been rubbing shoulders with the great, well, he was rubbing shoulders with the great and the good. And yet he's written a sweet little fable, which I think is really lovely. Oh, I like that. Yeah, fable. Yeah, because it feels, I mean, there's certain values, I think, in here which do date it. But in the most general terms, I think it is quite timeless what he's written. And, yes. I, th and I think that's the key with any great children's story is something that's timeless. Because actually, I, I did wonder if, um, you know, because Willie's different. I wondered if that was some 
statement about I don't know about sexuality or something like that of just being different and being like because when um, Mr. Smith starts attacking him and Willie's trying to you know make sense of this he's like what have I done I haven't done anything to 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 warrant this but yet I'm being this guy wants to bash my brains in and and that just reminded me of some sort of bigotry and mindless attacks that people experience not necessarily just for their gender but for all kinds of things that people consider to be different and so therefore marginalize those people. And maybe like for me, like I'm thinking, does Willie represent that in a way? So that's a, like a universal theme right there of just like being different and being attacked for nothing that you're doing, just who you are. Yeah. And finding the people who really care for you in the yeah. end, whatever their state. Yeah. No, I, I loved it. Like I said, and I'd never heard of it before. And sadly, he didn't write another children's book, but um, I'm glad we've got this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book was actually made into a film weirdly called The Great Rupert uh, with Jimmy Durante. Oh. And uh, rightly or wrongly, the film has disappeared, but I, I really think it's ripe for your remake. And I'm, I'm putting your remake in capital letters here. Maybe I should get on with it. Do you know, I think you should add it to your to-do list, which is probably quite long, but just stick it at the end. Let's see if the rights are available. <laughs> let's, let's make it box office. <laughs> Why, that could be you, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton. And Twice Upon a Time is a hat-trick podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.